Welcome. You're listening to Back Talk Doc, where you'll find answers to some of the most common questions about back pain and spine health. Brought to you by Carolina Neurosurgery and Spine Associates, where cutting-edge, nationally recognized care is delivered through a compassionate approach. This podcast is for informational purposes only and not intended to be used as personalized medical advice. And now, it's time to understand the cause of back pain and learn about options to get you back on track. Here's your Back Talk Doc, Dr. Sanjeev Lakia. One of the more challenging conditions that I often encounter in the office is that of hip versus back pain. People often will come in with pain either in the front of their hip or in the, the back of the hip, and it's our job as physiatrists to sort out where the pain is coming from. And I'm delighted today to have my friend and colleague, Dr. Paneet Agarwal, on the show to help me do just that. Paneet, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sanjeev. It's a pleasure being here. Awesome. Uh, let me introduce you uh, to the listeners. Uh, Paneet is a practicing physiatrist. Uh, he's been, how long have you been working in the Charlotte area? Uh, 16 years now. Yeah, it's 16 long years, long time. Yeah. He's, he's board certified in physical medicine and rehabilitation, pain medicine, and sports medicine. He specializes in non-surgical treatments for the spine and interventional pain medicine with a focus on spine and joint injections. Paneet is motivated to help each patient achieve relief from their symptoms so they can return to their normal activities. Dr. Agarwal is the director of Atrium Health Musculoskeletal Institute of Sports Medicine and medical director of physical medicine and rehabilitation. He has been named one of the best doctors in America, a best physician in Charlotte, by the Charlotte Business Journal, and a top doctor by the Charlotte Magazine for multiple years. He enjoys research in the topic of regenerative medicine, and he did receive his medical degree at the Medical College of Virginia, did his residency at Baylor College of Medicine, and a fellowship at the Medical College of Virginia Commonwealth University. And more important than all that, he is a very close friend and someone I highly respect. So again, thanks for taking time to kind of uh, sort through this issue. It's a pleasure, Sanjeev. Thank you for having me. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, we before we started, we kind of chuckled at the idea of patients coming in with hip pain, buttock pain, and what to make of it. Um, I kind of put it in the same category as trying to determine neck versus shoulder pain. It's one of one of the areas that as physiatrists, I think we are probably really well positioned to help answer, just given our background in orthopedics, spine, and neurology. Uh, I thought we'd we'd kind of uh, touch base. So let's let's set the stage first, kind of with a case presentation, and then we'll deconstruct it. For example, and tell me if this is one you often see is let's say fifty seven year old female who has been dealing with a fair amount of pain at times, kind of where the pant pocket would be, but also in the front as well, and they get pain with standing and walking, but also sitting and sometimes can have some relief with lying down, some difficulty with stairs. Is this something that you come across on a routine basis? Definitely. We see that all the time in the office, and it's always tricky to figure out whether it's the hip, whether it's the back, or possibly even both. Yeah, exactly. So I like to, uh, you know, for the listener's sake, and I have, as, as I told you before, I have kind of a combination of people who are just looking to improve their health and also medical professionals who listen to the podcast. So We'll try and keep this understandable for all you guys listening, but let's let's kind of break that down. Talk a little bit about the anatomy of the area. 
of the hip. And you know, I learned through my own challenges with my hip uh, over the last year, there's like 17 different muscles and, and ligaments that will go across the hip joint. So starting in the front, when someone comes to you and they have pain, let's say in the groin, what are you kind of thinking about considering uh, anatomically? Well, you're certainly thinking about the hip. Uh, the hip is a ball and socket joint. So it's formed by the, the socket, uh, which is the acetabulum of the pelvis, and, and the ball, which is the, the top part of the thigh bone that kind of moves in that socket. And it, it is responsible for a wide range of movement and stability in the lower body. So movement of the hip, abnormal movement of the hip can lead to different areas of pain in that pant pocket, but then referring to the groin area. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, often, and we'll jump to imaging um, in a little bit, but, you know, oftentimes we'll check x-rays and right away start to look at the ball and socket. And uh, one of the things that comes up quite often that I'll have patients ask me about is the health of their labrum. Can you tell people what the labrum is in the hip and its significance? The labrum is the outer college of, that lines the hip socket. It's the cushioning of the hip joint. It's like a rubber seal or a gasket that holds the hip ball in the socket. If there's a tear in the labrum, patients may hear like a pop or a click when moving their hip. Even a large tear can cause the hip joint to lock up. So they may have pain when they move their hip outward or turn their hip out or even extend their hip. And that's a sign of a, of a possible tear in the labrum. Right. And I like to think about it and, and I think you know as well with your sports medicine background that these labral tears, almost similar to disc degeneration, there's a component of this where it's just an aging response versus there are patients who come in, I think particularly younger patients who have the symptoms that you just described, you can think about that more as actually relevant and significant. So sometimes that can be a little tricky to determine to chase that or not. Absolutely. Sometimes they have a labral tear and it may not be the source of their pain, especially in a young person. They might have a small tear and that could just be there. And so it's tricky for us to determine whether that's really causing their pain or is there something else going on. So one of the ways we do that uh, would be with physical examination. What are you looking for when you're examining someone's hip? You're looking for pain with movement of the hip joint. So they often have positive favor sign, which is where they flex the hip, move the hip out, and turn the hip joint out. Or they may also have a opposite a positive fadir sign, which is where they move the, the leg in and then turn the hip in. And both of those typically reproduce pain. Sometimes you can even feel a little bit of instability as you move the hip joint, and that's a sign of a labral tear. Right. Yeah. So those are two exam findings that I definitely depend upon as well. Although I don't know how you feel, but I've found over my career uh, that I get all sorts of responses when, when I do those tests from back pain to knee pain and other things. So um, I'd have to look up again how specific they are uh, for the finding. But that's a good way to start. So essentially, like if you're at home and you're wondering, could your hip joint be a problem? One of the things that I'll ask from a history perspective would, would be, do you have pain when you go up steps? or get your leg in and out of a car, because some of those movements can reproduce uh, in the, what you just talked about. Yes, that's correct. Pain going upstairs, getting out of the car, pain with walking uphill that often will cause pain as well. 
Yeah, I think those are those are definitely standbys. And like one thing that I'll look for is just observing how someone will tie their shoe. Like a lot of people will just put their ankle on top of the other knee to tie their shoe. And my experience has been if you truly have a hip joint problem, that can be quite difficult for you. Yes. The other thing I often see is a patient presents holding their hip with like a C. So their fingers mm. are in front of the hip joint and their thumb is behind the joint. And they're just kind of holding their hip like they're trying to hold it in place. And so typically if they walk holding that their hip like that with like a C around their hip joint, that's, that's a sign that the pain is probably coming from the hip joint itself and not from elsewhere. That's a great tip that I haven't stumbled upon or read about in the literature. So maybe we can claim that as the Agarwal sign. <laughs> I think I did read about it somewhere. So I okay. don't think I can claim that. I don't want to get in trouble. But, oh. um, but <laughs> it's, it, I definitely see it sometimes when we see patients walking around and just walking around with a C. Now shifting gears to pain in the buttock area, that back pocket, so to speak, that almost is more common to me than the pain in the front. So when someone complains of pain in their hip, they say, my hip hurts. I always say, can you point to what you're talking about? And I would say probably three-fourths of the time, they're actually pointing to the buttock area, the gluteal area. Um, Share some of your thoughts on what's going through your head, both from an anatomical basis and maybe kind of like a history exam basis when someone has buttock pain. Well, when someone has buttock pain, I I think of the most common cause is likely the back, um, usually the spine. Usually the lower lumbar spine area can refer into that gluteal area and cause pain. So I, I ask them if they're having pain at sitting or standing, if they're having more pain walking around, and that's that could be the hip because there's weight bearing on the hip. But if they have pain more sitting, then I think it's probably more likely coming from the spine because um, the hip isn't really supporting you at that point. Um, there's not a lot of weight bearing on the hip. So just the typical history can tell you a lot about, a lot about where the pain is coming from. And certainly on exam, having them bend forward, bend back, backwards, having them move around and see how they can move their spine or their hip can tell you a lot about where the pain is coming from. Right. I agree with that totally. Uh, now, I don't think it's 100%. In fact, uh, one of our former colleagues, I believe, published a paper uh, where they looked at doing some diagnostic injections in the hip joint and looking at referral pain patterns. And they found you know, up to 20% of the time, buttock pain, and even a small percentage of the cases, they had pain going down the leg, mimicking a sciatic nerve distribution. So certainly medicine is not black and white, but in general, if it's if it's in the back, so to speak, the back of the hip, I think spine. If it's in the front, I think joint. What are some of the, let's say, um, key muscles in that area that also you think could contribute to pain in the buttock? Well, certainly the gluteus muscles contribute a lot of pain in the buttock. And, you know, we often have weak glute muscles. It's, our truck muscles aren't often very strong because a lot of us spend a lot of time sitting and, and that can lead to weak glial muscles and that can refer pain into the area. Some of the other muscles like the hip flexors may refer pain in the front, but sometimes they can refer pain into the, to the back as well. I agree with that. Now, the other one that I'd say uh, joint-wise would be the sacroiliac joint. Um, and I, I think I've, um, not to go back and look at my catalog, but I think it's, I, I talked about this a little bit. If you haven't, go, to, um, if you're listening and you haven't heard, is one of my first episodes where I talk about top causes of non-disc related back pain. 
but the sacroiliac joint is definitely a big culprit for a lot of people for just the reasons you mentioned, people sitting, weak glute muscles, uh, particularly in women, uh, just the wider dimensions of the pelvis can put more stress and strain on the SI joint, which is where uh, basically what I tell people is where the tailbone meets the hip bone in the back. The SI joint's a, a tricky joint. Um, as you mentioned, it's kind of where the, the spine meets the pelvis and um, it doesn't move very much, but if it moves little or moves too much, that can lead to um, pain. And I have to find these patients have pain when they, they get out of the chair and try to move around, uh, especially the first few steps are often difficult, but it's not an easy area to diagnose. And there's many different tests and none of them are very specific to making the diagnosis. So we oftentimes have to rule out other possible causes of pain when we're diagnosing the SI joint is the possible cause. Right. So that I agree with that. And the best way to determine if it is the cause is to inject it with some steroid anesthetic and see if someone gets better, which on the scale of risk, that is a very low risk procedure for most people and can provide some fairly immediate uh, feedback. So I like, I do a fair amount of those. You know, one of the things when you're talking about hip pain that can be tricky, and I want to get your thoughts on it is, the idea of pain in the knee. Do you ever see the hip joint refer pain into the knee? Yes, um, often, particularly the outer part of the knee. You know, the iliotibial band or the IT band kind of runs from those glute muscles on the outside of the hip joint down to the side, the side of the leg and down into the side of the knee. And oftentimes patients may have a tight IT band and then that causes pain, not necessarily in the hip, but actually down in, in the outer part of the knee you know, that pain is usually can occur when walking, running, that can actually make it worse. And a lot of times just doing the right type of stretching can help that. So just to illustrate for you guys listening, uh, you know, what he just said, how challenging it can be to sort this out. When you come in, if you've got pain in your hip and knee, it could be coming from the joint. It could be an irritation referral pain from the muscles going down the side of the leg. But there's also the lumbar nerve roots, you know, the L2 nerve root, the L3 nerve root, SI joint. So it's it can be a very complex issue. So if you've been struggling with this type of pain, uh, don't give up hope. You need someone who can really help tease it out and sort it out. Uh, as he just said, you know, there's muscular sources of pain that are quite often. Now, you mentioned the IT band. I would, I would kind of put an asterisk or caveat on that. This is not the same thing that was IT band syndrome that runners get, correct? Correct. This is more IT band tightness, but not necessarily the syndrome. Correct. All right. So that's pretty good. You broke down for us the groin pain, the glute pain, the referral pain pattern. Let's say you've made a diagnosis and it's, you feel like this patient that came in earlier, it's truly a hip joint problem. Let's kind of move into some of our specialty here, which are the rehab principles. What are you thinking about if you're writing a PT or physical therapy prescription? What are some of the things you've seen be helpful for people? Well, most patients with either hip or back pain uh, present with tight muscles. So doing some stretching and strengthening of the glute muscles, the gluteus medius, minimus, minimus, those are the three muscles of the buttocks can really be helpful. Also um, stretching out our hamstrings. Um, can be helpful as well. Many of us sit for work and we have, as a result, tight hamstrings because they stay constantly contracted. And that often leads to back and hip pain. And so stretching those 
muscles out and, and try to strengthen them at the same time can be helpful. You know, the hip flexor itself also plays a role in hip pain and it's the iliopsoas muscle, which is our prime primary hip flexor. It allows us to move our leg forward can be a source of pain and making sure that that muscle's loose and flexible is important to limiting both hip and back pain. Yeah, that's terrific. I think you checked all the boxes there on what goes through my mind. I think from an exercise perspective, like actually what helps people, we're talking about, I think, pelvic or glute bridges, uh, monster walk sidesteps, uh, all this res- resisted band work. And uh, my physical therapist in our Rock Hill office, uh, Tanner, he turned me on to a program called Crossover Symmetry. And we'll link to them in the show notes. They have a real nice, uh, very comfortable exercise band, resistance band that you can put around your ankles and or around your upper legs. And they walk you through some of these exercises. You can download it on a video. Of course, there's no substitute for getting personalized care by a physical therapist. But you're correct. I think inhibited glute muscles plays a huge role in dysfunctional hip joint movements. If you're having pain in the front of your hip, you likely have weakness in the back of it. So getting that strong as well as the hamstring and psoas work, it just really is important to have a good physical therapist who can look at you, see what your muscle imbalances are, and have a very customized exercise prescription. Absolutely. We're all built a little differently and seeing a physical therapist and assessing where your weakness is, where your muscles are tight, and then coming up with a good exercise program can be really beneficial. Kind of going back to the glute strengthening, I'm also a big fan of uh, of wall squats or even mm-hmm. um, just air squats and strengthening the glute muscles that way. Even if you can't go all the way down, just going down a little bit can be beneficial. Um, some of my patients who may be a little bit older and aren't able to do squats, I tell them try to just sit down on the couch and just go as far as you can and then stand back up. And then if, if you go too far, you're going to sit on the couch anyway, so you're not going to get hurt. But that way you can kind of work your glute muscles without putting a lot of stress on your glutes and you do it in a safe environment. But Nate, that's an excellent tip. I really like that. It, it speaks to the idea that we don't all have to perform the exercise to the same level. If you're doing a, a squat with a chair behind you or a couch behind you, you're not going to get as deep, but it'll still be very effective and you can preserve your knees and your ankles. And then what you're referring to with the wall squat, I'll recommend that as well because you can basically do what's called an isometric contraction. This is where you're contracting your quads and your glutes, um, but they're not changing their length. So you can use the wall for support. Although I would say if you're going to do that, do not do that with socks on on a slippery floor because you can you can end up slipping and falling. But the, there's there's really all sorts of modifications that can be made. If you're struggling with it, don't be discouraged by exercise causing discomfort. Just get with someone who knows what they're doing. And there's so many different variations of things. We well, you know one muscle we, I don't know if we touched on, that also can be quite important. Some of this is the piriformis muscle. You know, the piriformis muscle is a deep hip uh, external rotator and it abducts the hip or moves it out. And oftentimes can be a source of pain. Do you have experience with piriformis syndrome in your practice? Absolutely. We see, I see a lot of patients with piriformis syndrome and um, it's a, again, a very difficult area to diagnose because it refers pain from the buttock into the back of the leg. Sometimes we may think it's coming from the spine, but sometimes pain is just coming from the piriformis muscle itself. And um, personally, it's a hard muscle to stretch out. It's not 
It's very easy to small muscle, but it causes a lot of discomfort and it's not easy to stretch. I would agree with that. Tight piriformis, very, very common. I think it's because of some of the factors that you elaborated on earlier, which is sitting a lot, driving at desks, computer workstations, et cetera. It can be something that you have to stay on consistently. You know, I, every now and then I'll do a requested kind of piriformis block where I'll, I'll inject it under ultrasound. I try not to put too much steroid in a muscle, uh, but the ultrasound can, a guided injection can give us some diagnostic information. I do feel like piriformis syndrome is a bit more common in women. And again, probably due to the dimensions of the pelvis, but it's not exclusive. And I think it's just part of a comprehensive rehab program if that's something that we feel like you're suffering from. One asterisk to that diagnosis, though, and I'll get your thoughts on it. You mentioned the piriformis, when it's irritated or inflamed, can refer pain down the back of the leg. I feel like for every 10 patients that maybe a physical therapist sends to me for treatment of piriformis syndrome, five to seven of them actually have an S1 radiculopathy or an L5-S1 disc issue irritating their S1 nerve root, which goes down the back of the leg. Do you feel like you'll pick up that sometimes as kind of um, the piriformis diagnosis could be not complete? Absolutely. I think that's what makes diagnosing piriformis um, difficult is sometimes we kind of label everything in the buttock piriformis. It's hard to figure out what's truly piriformis and then what's actually an S1 radiculopathy or an L5 radiculopathy. And so usually when it's going down the back of the leg, I would agree with you, most likely it is radiculopathy, but occasionally it can be the piriformis. And more times than not, it would be radiculopathy. So I, I would agree with your numbers about five to six out of 10 is probably more likely radiculopathy. All right, circling back to our case, let's say she's come in, you thought it was hip joint, you set up some PT, she comes back to you, she's made some progress, but still having some discomfort. You're ready to do some diagnostic workup, some imaging. What are your thoughts on kind of what's available to help us figure these things out? So if you're thinking of a hip issue, usually you can get an x-ray. If you're thinking osteoarthritis, a weight-bearing x-ray can help you determine if there's arthritis in the hip joint. But if you're looking for something more involved, like a labral tear, you probably need an MR arthrogram where they inject contrast in the hip joint and then shoot an MRI. Nowadays, though, there's 3T MRIs that often can show a labral tear without having to inject contrast in the hip. So that's a newer thing that makes it easier to get an MRI because you don't have to inject contrast in the hip joint and worry about those issues. If you're thinking of a muscular issue, then ultrasound can often be helpful to look for a possible tear or even tendonitis on on ultrasound. Yeah, I agree. And in the Charlotte area, I think we have fabulous radiology services that three Tesla, three T MRI patients love it, uh, avoids the injection of contrast in the hip. And then there's a good point there about the ultrasound diagnostic ultrasound. There are some other kind of clinical entities like uh, snapping tendons in the hip and diagnoses that can be made only on movement based imaging. And that's where musculoskeletal ultrasound can be quite phenomenal in helping find a diagnosis. So the, the key take home there is there are a fair number of imaging options to look at the hip joint, but most of them, I would say in general, aren't needed beyond the x-ray. Uh, if you're in an older age bracket and we're really looking just for degenerative problems. Now, if, if that, let's say you got an x-ray on this uh, patient that came to you and, you know, looks like there is some degenerative issues in the hip joint. 
What are some of the injection options that you offer? Usually we do an, a guided injection into the hip joint itself. So an intraarticular hip joint injection. Typically, I myself perform under x-ray, but also can be done under ultrasound as well. Yeah, so you were talking about cortisone uh, mixed yes. with some anesthetic, right? Yes, I'm talking about uh, a steroid injections into the hip joint. And what would be like a reasonable expectation for someone who gets one of those? Well, steroid injections aren't going to take all the pain away, but I think a reasonable expectation would be about 50 to 75% relief in, in their pain. And then with all steroid injections, the key is once the pain is better to focus on exercises and even physical therapy to help treat the underlying cause and, and then have long-term pain relief. That's absolutely key. I'm glad you said that. If all you do is come in requesting an injection, you've put out the fire temporarily, but the mechanical, the biomechanical factors that uh, Dr. Agarwal just discussed for us in great detail, if those aren't addressed, you're just going to end up probably in the same spot you were in about three months. Now, you and I both know all the rage in the last maybe five years and gaining steam in the last two years has been the idea of biologic injections into the joint. Everyone wants stem cells. You cannot listen to the radio without a commercial for some practice advertising regenerative injections. And I know we could probably spend an hour on this topic, but you know, give us kind of your just initial instincts and thoughts on the evolving field of biologic options, uh, regenerative options for, let's just keep it simple for mild to moderate hip arthritis. So that that's a tricky field. And like you mentioned, it's evolving and what we know now may change in a, in a couple of years as we get more research about, about regenerative medicine. Currently, there's no great data to show that stem cells into the hip joint would regenerate the hip joint, but there's case studies um, where patients have had mild or, mar- or moderate arthritis in their hip joint, and they've had either PRP, which is plasma-rich prolotherapy, where platelets have injected into the hip or stem cells and gotten some benefit. But these are very small studies, and we still need large studies to really see if this is something that can be used widespread. Yeah, I, you know, I think I share a similar view. For the hip joint, hip arthritis, I've done a handful of PRP injections. I've done a handful, a few years ago, of um, some amniotic fluid uh, injections. And my results, I think, have been unimpressive for that diagnosis. Where I've seen the PRP in particular be quite effective are with the muscle tendon issues around the hip. So very common partial tears of the gluteus tendons at the trochanter or the side of the hip, the bone that that you can feel on the side of the hip. I see ultrasound guided injections for that to be really effective. Uh, After about three months, people seem to have a fair amount of relief. And that's you know, to me, that's a really good application of regenerative medicine where we don't really have good other options. You know, nobody wants a hip replacement, but if you're in your 50s, 60s, 70s, and you're having a lot of pain, you have moderate, severe hip arthritis, the hip replacement has become, I think, so effective for a lot of people. And the rehab times are far shorter than when you are and I were in training. Absolutely. I think the surgery itself has been refined so well, and there's been so many surgeries. I think they, they do a really good job of knowing what to do both 
for the hip replacement, so prehab, strengthening the area, the, the surgery itself, and then the therapy that's needed after. And so there's good results from hip replacement. So I think if you really have severe arthritis, I don't think a stem cell injection or PRP is going to help you. But as you mentioned, if you have more like a muscle tear or tendonitis, that's where some of those biologics or regenerative medicine can be effective. Yeah, no, I think that's a responsible kind of approach to it. Uh, one thing that just occurred to me that I uh, definitely want to touch on, I'd be remiss if I don't, is the role of EMG and electrodiagnostics in trying to evaluate patients coming in with buttock pain and hip pain. Can you share with uh, the listeners kind of just at a high level what an EMG actually is and then how it can be helpful in this process of figuring things out? So EMG or electromyography is testing the, the nerves as they leave the spine. In this case, we're looking for whether there's a pinched nerve in the back or whether there's an issue with the local nerves in the area. The test is performed by performing little bits of electrical stimuli on the nerve and seeing how the signals carry along the nerve. And if there's a breakdown along the nerve, then we're going to see abnormality on the test. So patients who come in with hip pain or groin pain or buttock pain, the test really help us determine if there's a nerve etiology that's causing their pain, um, whether it's a pinched nerve in the back or a local nerve in the area. Yeah, exactly. And let's just be honest. It is uncomfortable, but it's tolerable. So hey, I, that's probably the number one question I get from people is, does it hurt? And I think it's a little bit uncomfortable, but it's very tolerable. And the nice thing about EMG is we interpret that in real time. So we have results right then and there that we can share with people. Exactly. I, I agree. It's, it's a little uncomfortable, but it is definitely tolerable having had it on myself. But yeah, you get the results right away and it gives you an idea of what's going on with the nerve as well. So not just that there's a nerve issue, but is it in the healing stage? Is it still in the injury stage? Or is it a little bit of healing and recovery stage? Well, I hope this uh, gives you all out there with, with hip issues a little bit of food for thought. I think uh, Pania has done an amazing job breaking down everything from the anatomy of the hip joint, um, how it can present in many different manners, some of the diagnostic imaging that we consider for people, and it's just even some of the treatment and rehab options now, as, I, as we close uh, the interview today, before I let you go, I know you're an avid runner. I see you running around the neighborhood, putting me to shame every weekend. What are your thoughts about the hip joint and running in general? So if someone has a little bit of arthritis, are you pro or con slowing that running down? I had this debate with my father all the time who keeps telling me that I should stop running because my joints are going to wear out. And my response to him is that if I did nothing, my joints would probably weaken and that would be actually worse. So, you know, it's kind of a, I think maintaining strength, but also maintaining flexibility at the same time is, is the key. So I like to run, but I do spend a lot of time stretching as well. Usually in the evenings after we put the kids to bed, my wife and I watch like a show for an hour and I'm on the floor the entire time doing stretches. And, and so I think you want to stay active and keep your muscles strong. And sometimes learning the right stretches and the right exercises are key, but um, I, don't, I think that's much better than, than just sitting around and, and the muscles weaken and you actually have more issues. Yeah, I agree with that. I had, in Cincinnati, I had a partner who would run those, uh, those races that were 50 miles or even 100 mile races, uh, just crazy, crazy distances. And I decided to, and he was in, he looked 
amazing. He's in his late 50s, early 60s. Um, Bobby Witten, just amazing physiatrist, amazing person. And I decided to look up a little bit the research on running and joint degradation. And surprisingly, there's very little published evidence and data to suggest is problematic long term. I think for acute injuries, it certainly makes sense for a load-bearing joint like the hip to involve some degree of rest. But in terms of if people who run versus those who don't long-term, how do their joints turn out? I don't think there's convincing data either way to have an answer. So as you said, you've got to move your body. You've got to maintain strength and flexibility. And I also know for you, there's, there's probably, I'm going to guess, a significant mind-body component to being able to go out for an hour or two run, time to yourself, endorphin release, and stress relief. Absolutely. Um, I really enjoy running. And in every run, the first mile or so, I'm like, I want to stop. This isn't going to happen today. And then, you know, after that mile or two miles, it feels great. You know, you feel on top of the world, you know, you're running, you're, it's just you in the road and, and you just get to relax. You know, for non-runners, that sounds strange, but it's a great endorphin release and it's a lot of fun. That's awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. We're going to link, uh, in, link to your practice in the show notes. I know you have a couple offices in the Charlotte area. And we'll put your kind of contact info in for any uh, people listening that feel like they want to come in and get an evaluation by you. And they certainly can connect with you. Uh, I appreciate your time and I really enjoyed it, Pneet. Thank you, Sanjeev. Thank you for having me. This is an amazing podcast. I'm sure a lot of people find it helpful, but I appreciate you having me today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Back Talk Doc, brought to you by Carolina Neurosurgery and Spine Associates, with offices in North and South Carolina. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Lakia and treatment options for back issues, go to backtalkdoc.com. We look forward to having you join us for more insights about back pain and spine health on the next episode of Back Talk Doc. Additional information is also available at carolinaneurosurgery.com.